Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 5. And uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus, of course, is up on the mountainside and he began to teach. I'll read uh, the first nine verses for you and you can see other scriptures on the back of your sermon outline. Listen to the word of God. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So far the reading of God's word. What do you think of when you hear the Hatfields and the McCoys? You know, America this week has been gripped by this production on the History Channel. I don't know if you've heard about this, but I was down in Manhattan and I took the the shuttle from uh, Times Square over to Grand Central Station and the shuttle train car was one big advertisement for this mini-series of the Hatfields and the McCoys, and even the inside was painted and had old-fashioned chairs for the seats, and they had TV screens showing parts of this mini-series. The Hatfields and the McCoys. Do you know the story? It's about this feud, this blood feud between families for generations. Vigilante justice Murder, hatred and acrimony, betrayal and bitterness. And while there was some tension between the families, really it all started over one hog, a pig that one of the Hatfields stole, allegedly from Randall McCoy. And there was a trial. And the trial was presided over by a Hatfield, and the star witness found for the Hatfield, though he was a member of the McCoys, and later he was killed, and then so the feud rose and rose. The Bible tells us that conflict... And feuding is an awful reality in our world. That we are sinners like pieces of flint in a box that gets shaken up. And when flint strikes flint, what happens? Sparks fly. And they fly, well, they fly in marriage. They fly in families. They fly in our own cultures. And they fly between nations. 
And God's word, the Bible, Elias is right, is living and active. And so even what is recorded, all the sordid conflicts in their ugliness in the Bible, God's word is recorded for us. And as a warning, and as an example, as instruction to us. The Bible is not pie in the sky, by and by, everything is lovely. The Bible is so real. So that even all the way back at the beginning in Genesis, you have the sibling rivalry of the first sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and soon after them, Jacob and Esau at each other's throats. You have the terrible example of parents and children. Pick what you like, David and Absalom, and Absalom wants to usurp his father and put him to death, and there's warfare. You have marriage, and it records for us Adam and Eve again in their first struggle, and soon as, as soon as the sin happens, there's blame shifting and accusation and acrimony and separation. And even, again, David and his wife, Michal. And you remember, they had conflict. It was over worship style. Over worship style, they had conflict. And then she humiliates him, and he punishes her. It's recorded in all its ugliness right there in the Bible. In society, we read of racism. The Jews and the Samaritans so closely linked, and yet there is, a, there is this racial animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's warnings about, well, we use the term today, class warfare, but it's the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots don't like the haves, and the, and the haves look down their noses and judge the have-nots, and the epistles are filled with warnings about that kind of conflict and, and acrimony. Just in society. And then, of course, Jesus in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. Jesus tells us, nation will rise against nation and the sparks will fly with terrible consequences of war. But, of course, we know that in that most cherished relational connection in the church, there would never be conflict, right? Because we know that we just live in harmony and mutual edification and peace, and we just have such wonderful, loving agreement with each other all the time. Except that the Bible speaks of factions and the the bad kind of party spirit. Not party spirit, oh, let's have a party, but party spirit. I'm of this party of Peter, I'm of this party, of Paul, I'm of this party, the Presbyterians, I'm of this party, the Pentecostals, and, and even the book of Philippians was written, the book of joy was written on the occasion of two women in the church at Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche, who were battling each other, and Paul says, I've got to write to that city because of the conflict in the body of Christ. Tragically, sparks. Where do the sparks come from at every level? Well, the Bible not only describes it, but it explains it in the book of James. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Could it be any clearer? And so the Hatfields and the McCoys do not surprise us, nor do the sparks that fly in our lives and around us. And even, James says, your desires, even good desires, even good desires rise up and then they begin to control you. And you don't control them, but they control you. And you start, at least if you're like me, and you start to judge other people. And then either you avoid them or you punish them until you get what you want. And it may just be a minor opinion over a hog. But it leads to the Hatfields and the McCoys. And so Jesus raises the subject, not at the beginning of the Beatitudes, but now well into them, Jesus raises the subject. And the Bible speaks very pointedly in many parts, especially of the New Testament, of what each of us needs to do when we are in conflict and the sparks fly. And we need to start with the question, what is my typical response to conflict? How do I respond in a way that honors God? And that's really point number two. What is your usual style of handling conflict? When Bill teaches this course, and I've sat in on it, He uses this helpful illustration that he gets from Ken Sandy, who wrote that Peacemaker's Pledge. He he uses this picture of the slippery slope. And as James says, the the desires rise up inside of us, and then they begin to control us, and and then either uh, I fall off one side of the slope or the other. And Bill would ask us, are you a peace faker, or are you a peace breaker? Those are the first two struggles that each of us has. Who's the peace faker? This is the person who just wants to avoid the conflict, the unpleasant situation. This is the person who doesn't want to put in the effort and the work that it's going to take to Uh, resolve the differences in a godly way. And if you saw any of the Hatfield and McCoys on the History Channel, and I only saw a little bit of it last night, but there was this one scene where one of the Hatfield sons is fishing with Devil Ain'ts Hatfield, the leader of the clan, and they're fishing, and he says, I hate this fight. I just wish it would go away. I just want to go cut down trees and sell logs. I can relate to that. Can you? He doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to be a part of the resolution of it. He just wants it to go away. And I have to tell you, there are times when Nina and I have an argument. And... uh, Especially if it, in those rare occasions when it's mostly my fault, 
I think to myself, I just wish he'd get over it. I just want it to go away. And I'll, I'll vacuum the family room, you know, or I'll wash a few extra dishes, you see, and she should just get over it. And I'm just a peace faker because I'm not willing to do what it takes to resolve this in a God-honoring way. What is your tendency? The other tendency Bill taught us is that of the peace breaker. And this is the person who wants to control the situation and get their way rather than preserving the relationship. And what the peace breaker does is they attack. They are what the psychologists call the attacker. And the attacker uh, has all kinds of strategies. And sometimes I will do this as well. And the way the clever attacker does, moves, the peace breaker, is that in order to get his way, he will start to point out other things that you do wrong that are not even related to the conflict. To try and get an upper hand and to try and manipulate uh, the situation uh, in order to, to either punish the other person or at least force them to acquiescence. So that I can get my desires regardless of the relationship. Which do you think is your tendency? There's a little bit of both of those in all of us, but what is your tendency? Are you a peace faker or are you a peace breaker? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's the third way. That's the right way. That's the holy way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Who are these peacemakers? As Jesus teaches us, as, as our brother Bill has taught us so well, these are the people who inhale the grace of God. These are the people who have received the mercy of God. And then they exhale grace and forgiveness and they promote justice, and they model repentance, and they seek reconciliation, and they've learned how to sit down with the other person and say, hey, we're not enemies. Is there something between us that we need to work out? Let's work this out. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And that really leads to the third point here in your sermon outline, and it's this. If you and I are going to be peacemakers, you have to learn that peacemaking flows out of your own personal experience of the gospel. This is not just some nice humanistic ideal. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Well, guess what? The world won't sing in perfect harmony. But you, child of God, you who have experienced peacemaking from the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, you, you have power in your soul to become a peacemaker and to seek reconciliation because you know what Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says of the Messiah. 
For he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the... You know what's next? The Prince of Peace. That's Jesus Christ. That's your Messiah. That's your Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. And if you have experienced it, friends, is this new to some of you? Maybe you've never read the, the, the letter of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, that's the source of our peace. Justification, salvation comes by faith in Him, not by endless striving on the rat wheel of, of religious duty, but by by faith, resting in Christ, you are justified and you have peace with God. The war is over with God. Did you know that? According to Paul, because of Christ, you are at peace with God your Father. Before he went to the cross in John 14, Jesus says, my peace I give you. Can you hear that today? Have you heard him say that to you as you've read the Bible? And after his resurrection, he greets his disciples, not once but twice, and he says, peace be unto you. That's his desire for us, his disciples. And when you experience that peace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, you receive peace, then you make peace. Maybe between you and someone else. Maybe between two friends of yours who are at war with each other and you know God is calling you to step in and intercede and to assist them in the peacemaking process. But you who've received peace, then Paul says... In Romans 14, 19, you see that in your program, uh, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And if you do this, according to Jesus, you will be blessed. And we, we've defined that. You will prosper spiritually. If you're a peacemaker, you'll prosper. It will be well with your soul. Now, here's a, a good question maybe some of you have asked. Why does he say, make every effort? Or you could say, try hard at peacemaking. Why does he say, make every effort? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because peacemaking, as Bill said, doesn't come naturally to our sinful flesh. I'll tell you what comes naturally to my flesh. <laughs> What comes naturally to my flesh is to get my own way. That doesn't take any effort at all, especially if I'm feeling righteous. And I especially want my own way. And how I get it becomes secondary. When Paul says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, apparently how I do it matters too. I think 
It's beautiful that Jesus didn't begin with this beatitude. He didn't make this the first beatitude. <laughs> you see, uh, the, the, he started with blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. He then he goes to those who mourn over their sin. And then he says, blessed are the meek, because we have to get our, our strength under control and to be meek. And then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. We have to be cleansed. <laughs> and then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Thank you, Lord, for not starting with blessed are the peacemakers. But we need first the humility that comes and the cleansing that comes from a relationship with Him so that we will be pure in heart. The, 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 the Apostle James seems to be having Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in mind, when he says in James three seventeen and 18, listen to this. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere, verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace, and they raise a harvest of righteousness. James follows the same order as Jesus does, you see. We experience that cleansing and purity, and then we have this wonderful relationship that leads to mutual edification and to peace. And the Bible gets very concrete, very practical. And I hope the Scripture that, that was read earlier woke you up a little bit. Romans 12, 14 through 21. Can you hear this again? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's very practical. He's talking about tongue control, how you speak, the attitude that you have. Does it communicate blessing or does it communicate cursing? Because he knows practically the way we tend to respond. And when he says uh, to bless and not curse, he's also saying, secondly, if you're a Christian that you're not going to solve conflict the way the world solves conflict. You're going to be different from the way of the world. In the world, the person says, put up your dukes, and you say, okay, let's go at it. And I hope I'm stronger or faster than you. And Paul says, no, you're not going to do it the way the world does it. You're going to bless the person who frustrates you how are you doing at that? And then he says, as much as it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And, and I'm glad he uses that phrase, as far as you are able, as much as you are able, as much as it depends on you. Because there will be those times that no matter how much you bless the other person and how much you make every effort, still they want to have war. And what does that mean for you? Well, then it means you suffer. You suffer for Christ. You suffer for Christ then. I love what Matthew Henry, the old uh, Puritan commentator, says about these very practical verses. He says, the Christian is a peacemaker who has, you might write this down, who has a peaceable disposition and a peaceable conversation. It's very practical. 
He says, you must have a peaceable disposition and a peaceable conversation. Uh, And that disposition just is, you have such a desire to get along, to, to make sure there's peace in the family. And it's not wrong to desire that. Some psychologists say, oh, you're just an enabler. But you're not just an enabler if you desire peace and mutual edification. That's good. You and I both know people who thrive on conflict, right? You know people like that who have a psychological bent inside of them that it seems like wherever they go, they leave a wake behind them of bodies and and of turmoil and, and, and smoke rising from the ashes. Matthew Henry says, that's not a Christian. If you're a war maker, he says, look carefully to see whether or not you are a Christian. You have a, Christians have a peaceable disposition. And then secondly, he says, they have peaceable conversation. And that means you will bless and not curse. You will speak words that edify and encourage and build up. And when somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I've... I think there's something we need to work out. The Christian says, oh, okay, well, that's a good thing because we should work it out between us. Let's, let's see if we can resolve this in a God-honoring way. He, he has antenna. I, Matthew Henry didn't know what antenna was, but the Christian has antenna that understands that maybe a person will approach him and say, we need to work something out. And, of course, we have friends in our family or in our church or at work, and they're in conflict. And you know God calls you then in the right way to assist in the peacemaking process. And is that pleasant to do? <laughs> what happens when you get between two dogs that are fighting each other? Well, both dogs bite you. That's rough. And it is hard. It's difficult to assume that mediatorial position because you get to have both sides mad at you at certain points. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we learn these peacemaking principles so that we can assist each other. That's what Paul does with Euodia and Syntyche there in Philippi. This is important. Matthew Henry, again, he says, Woe to the peace breakers. God will not own those for His children who are implacable. That means unbreakable in their hostility to one another. For if the peacemakers are blessed, woe to the peace breakers. Now, now, I know, I'm sure you know that sometimes, especially in the church, in the body of Christ, in the church, there are times when, when we disagree about theology in sometimes big ways, or we disagree about philosophy of ministry, how we're going to do church. And sometimes those differences are, are fairly substantial, and, and then it gets to a point where it creates a dissonance. And frankly, I'm so glad for Acts chapter 15, where we have an example of Paul and Barnabas. And they, they disagree about how they're going to do the next phase of their ministry together. 
It's a difference over philosophy of ministry and leadership development issues. And they, they love each other, they respect each other, they've labored together, but they also decided that there's such dissonance in the, in the approach that each one has that they've decided one's going to go this way, one's going to go that way. And that does happen, but it happens with a peaceable disposition and with peaceable conversation, desire for mutual edification. It does happen. But whatever happens, peacemaking is something treasured by Jesus Christ. For then you will be called children of God. What a result. You resemble God when you're a peacemaker. Yeah, there's war between nations. You may not be called to bring peace between nations. Yours, yours might be a little more localized. But you know, there was a Christian man from Oyster Bay, New York, who in 1906 won the Nobel Peace Prize. Who was that who won the Nobel Prize in 1906? Theodore Roosevelt, ending the, the Russian-Japanese War. So many people think of Teddy Roosevelt as this warrior who rode up the hill, you know, leading the cavalry. But Theodore Roosevelt was a Christian man and a man who valued peace. And war was only to protect the weak or those who were unjustly being uh, uh, assaulted. But he was a man of peace. And he won this huge Nobel Prize and he gave that money away to a foundation in order to create peace between labor and management in the great turmoils of the early uh, 1900s. Maybe, maybe you will have a place in the State Department or of influence to bring the end of wars between nations, but surely... If you hear this word today, you know now He's calling you to be a peacemaker in your family and in your marriage and at your workplace and in our church. I put a pamphlet in your program this morning. I'd like you to take it out, if you would, as we conclude today. And if you look again at the peacemaker pledge on the back, I want to call you to a commitment today. How can we ignore what the apostle says? Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. He says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So how can we do less? And you see there the four G's of peacemaking. I know it's small and you might not have brought your reading glasses. I, want you, I don't want you to throw this away. I want you to put it in your Bible as a bookmark. But what, what do you do when conflict comes your way? Number one, glorify God. In, look at this. It says, instead of focusing on our own desires or dwelling on what others may do, we will rejoice in the Lord and bring Him praise by depending on His forgiveness, wisdom, power, and love as we seek to faithfully obey His command and maintain a loving, merciful, and forgiving attitude. That's the first G, glorify God. Number two, get the log out of your own eye. This is being poor in spirit. This is mourning over your sin. This is meekness. 
And it says, instead of blaming others for a conflict or resisting correction, we will trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins to those we have wronged, asking God to help us change any attitudes and habits that lead to conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we have caused. And Jesus taught us that, didn't he, in Matthew 7? Take the log out of your own eye first, then you see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But you don't stop there. Then the next G is gently restore. Instead of pretending that conflict doesn't exist, or talking about others behind their backs in gossip, you see, we will overlook minor offenses, or we will talk personally and graciously with those whose offenses seem too serious to overlook, seeking to restore them rather than condemn them. When a conflict with a Christian brother or sister cannot be resolved in, a private, in private, we will ask others in the body of Christ to help us settle the manner, matter in a biblical manner. And then the fourth one, and don't forget this fourth one, because you can do the first three, but then go and be reconciled. Instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we will actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation, forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, and seeking just and mutually beneficial solutions for our differences. Are you at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? If you're not sure, then today's the day. Today's the day for you to say, Lord, I don't want to be at war with you. I want the cross of Jesus, my Savior, to make peace between us. But if you have said that, and if you rejoice in that, then today, today will you pray with me now. And let us resolve to be agents of His peace in this world. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, how we thank You for the wisdom of Your Word and how we ask that, that we will reflect Your peace. You said, My peace I give You. And oh, thank You for that. Now maybe right now, You've, you've spoken to each of our hearts. Maybe there is someone we're at odds with, we're at war with, And you put your finger on my heart and you said, it's time to go and be reconciled. To at least take the steps to seek your glory, to take the log out of my own eye, and then to go and say, we need to talk. And we... We need to see if we can resolve this in a way that is mutually beneficial so that as far as it depends on me, there will be no gulf of hatred between us. And then go and be reconciled. Yes, Lord, would you do that miracle that we may forgive as God has forgiven us And we pray for the nations of the world, Lord. We pray that we as Christians could participate in the solution to conflict, to bloodshed. 
We pray that we will not participate in racism or hatred between the sexes. We pray that we, O Lord, will be agents of your peace between labor and management. And we pray for unity and sweet love and mutual building up of each other in our church family, in our local home fellowship groups, in the youth ministry, as leaders in the church. For your glory we pray. Oh, blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love. In Jesus' name, amen.